All right. Um, let's turn our attention to the scriptures uh, by means of introduction. I'll just give you the title for the sermon this morning, which is "You Can Sometimes Get What You Want, But Don't Be Surprised That You Just Might Find It's Not What You Need." You know it. All right. Sometimes you need to be careful what you wish for because you just might get it, in other words. Has that, has that ever happened to you before? Have you ever wanted something so badly and worked for it, obsessed about it, prayed for it, but then when you got it, it was not what you thought it would be? Sometimes it is something as small as a toy. You know this, children. You know what it's like to want something so badly. And you cry about it and you, you finally break your parents. You break their will. And you get what you want. And that thing that you wanted so badly in a couple weeks is just collecting dust. You know Sometimes it's not toys. Sometimes it can be something as significant as a marriage or a promotion or an election. Something you work for and hope for. You want so badly and then it doesn't happen. It either breaks your heart, you're in despair, or you get it and you're disappointed because it's not what you what you wanted. What happens when the thing you long for, you find it wanting, or worse, you find it harming you? The thing you thought would be a blessing is a curse. Our text this morning asks us, what if? What if that moment of disappointment or discouragement or despair wasn't an opportunity to double down on whatever passion we had or to, to spiral down, but what if God was involved in all of it? And what if our disappointment is an invitation by God drawing us to himself to reevaluate our desires, an opportunity to realign our affections, and to place our hearts on the one thing that can truly satisfy it's what we'll be looking at today. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, traveling through the book of 1 Samuel. I'll read the first, I'll read this chapter um, today for us. And so, if you're able, let's stand in honor of God's word. When Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Burn, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a, a king to judge us. 
And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and your servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us, and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, every... uh, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated and I'll pray for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you be with us as we look at your word today? As we open your word and consider it, would you by your spirit illumine it in our hearts and help us to obey, draw us to yourself. We pray this in your strong name. Amen. What happens when you get what you want, but it wasn't what you were looking for? The Israelites are just in that situation. And the thing that they want, that they're asking for, is a king. And if you've been with us as we've journeyed through the series, you'll remember that the book of Samuel begins in a terribly dark season, one of the lowest seasons in the history of Israel. It's a season marked by corruption and abuse and the reason the, the nation is so dark is because of its leaders. And so the first seven chapters of Samuel is really about God clearing the deck, removing the cancer of these unjust and foolish leaders that had led Israel to this place of brokenness and misery. And we see God raise up a new leader in the person of Samuel, who leads uh, Israel to a season of peace and prosperity. Now we're 30 years, uh, we just fast forwarded 30 years from the last story that we were in. And the question now before the nation of Israel is what's next? Who's going to lead us in the future? And that's where we pick up the story. And it tells us that Samuel is old. 
It tells us that a couple of times. We're also told that he has made provision for his departure. He has two sons. But of course, there's a problem. His sons are nincompoops. Worse than that, they are as bad as Eli's sons were before them. Remember Eli's sons? Good guys or bad guys? Bad guys. They used their position for, spirit, uh, for personal gain. They were dishonest. They perverted justice. They used and abused people. How tired we are of Christian leaders who use and abuse people. And so really there is a sense here of, oh no, here we go again. A decent leader who is unwilling to make a hard call when it relates to their children. And that creates the problem that the elders respond to in verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are now old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so these elders would have been individuals who would have lived through the disaster of Eli and his sons. They would have experienced the heartache and experienced the grief. They would have experienced the the devastation caused by their failed leadership. And so these elders have every right to be concerned, given what they've been through. And given what God has promised to them, their request makes a lot of sense. Because the author has been creating an expectation for a coming king since the beginning of the book. And not only that, from the, before that, in the, in the giving of the law, in Deuteronomy 17, God had made provision for a king and it's told us what the king is supposed to give his time to and what he's supposed to be like. Even before that, to the time of Abraham, there had been this expectation that there would be a coming king. Yes, a king coming in God's timing, in God's ways, but a king nonetheless. And so the problem isn't that they want a king. The problem comes in the next line. They want a king to judge us like all the other nations. Literally, it says, like all of the Gentiles. Here's why that's a problem. God had called Israel to be distinct from all the other nations. They were called to be a holy nation, a contrast community. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. And by the way they lived life together, they were supposed to reveal the righteous heart of God. But instead of the nations learning from Israel, Israel is now learning from the nations. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be distinct, which is what holiness means in the scriptures. But instead, they want to blend. They want to conform. They want to fit in. And so their request for a king to be like all the other nations, it's not just, it's a rejection, it's a rejection of their identity. 
and what's their motivation? And I think we find it in verse 20. There's really two reasons that they give. And the first is that they want to be like the other nations. It's, the, it's two times that that's said, like the other nations. And I take from that that it's just hard to be different. Isn't it? Peer pressure is a real thing, y'all. The pressure to fit in and to go with the flow and to be like everybody else. I bet it wasn't easy to be little Israel. I mean, how are you guys doing with that? We, like them, are supposed to be a light to the nations, declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his light, revealing a new way to do money and power. How are we doing? I feel the pressure to cave every day. We would rather blend. So with Israel. And so this move was a rejection of their identity. It was also a move that was full of fear and faithlessness. Fear that doing it God's way wouldn't work. Have you ever thought that? Like if I truly did what the Bible told me to do in a particular area, it just isn't going to work. It's not likely that it's going to go well for me. You see, God had promised a king, but he hadn't given a timeline. It's hard to wait when there's no timeline. It's hard to trust God's timing, especially when times get tough. Um. And let's be honest, God's ways sometimes don't seem like they're going to work. Sure, he's proven in the past that he can take care of Israel's enemies without a physical army. And that's what the whole thing with the ark, like going on a tour all by itself and just smoking all Israel's enemies. That's what that was there to tell us. God can take care of his people without help at all. But that doesn't seem like a great national defense strategy all the time. Just to sit around and pray and hope while the enemies are knocking at the door. And there were enemies at the doorstep. Verse 20, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they wanted. And they had a choice, which was to trust God's ways And timing, which required faith and dependence and weakness and waiting. Or do you look for a solution that will yield short-term gains with no thought to the long-term woes? This is something that we do all the time with leaders, isn't it? We pick a leader who can get things done. Get somebody to sit on a court or to get some legislation passed through. But they lack the character to not have it cost a lot in the end. That happens on both sides of the political spectrum. It's the hard choice that we're called to make sometimes. 
we're tempted to believe that character won't work. So we choose charisma over character and power over kindness and pride over humility and strength over meekness and lashing out over forgiveness. Fact is, God's way doesn't always work if by working we mean winning in the eyes of the world or in our neighbor or getting the legislation passed or keeping up with the Joneses. But if working means giving an alternative witness to the kingdom of God, if working means holding the place of kindness and goodness and blessedness in the world, then the way of the kingdom always works. And in the end, the Israelites were in this place where they were letting fear motivate them rather than faith. Where they were letting the ends justify the means. And that can be a very dangerous place to be. It's hard to be different, and God's ways don't always seem to work. And so they cave. And look at God's response, verses 6 and, uh, through 9. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being a king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God says some very interesting things here, but the most surprising by far is obey their voice. Give them what they want. He says they're rejecting me. Let's listen to them. What in the world? If what they are... Wanting is so bad, why does God give it to them? Why doesn't he simply say, no, I'll reign over you. I am your king. And what we surmise is this, that God will sometimes answer your prayers to let you learn the hard way that what you were asking for was wrong. God will let us feel that pain. He almost always begins with a warning. And a warning is what he gives them. And we find it in verses 10 through 18 where Samuel catalogs what this king like all the nations will end up being like and what it will cost the people. And the key word in that section is the word take. He'll take your sons as soldiers. He'll take your daughters as servants. He'll take your land. He'll take your property. He'll take your money. The king will take, 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 take. And the net, uh, the net result is you yourselves will become his slaves. Instead of serving the Lord, they will become slaves to a king. In effect, they find themselves back in Egypt. And it was their own choice. And the irony is tremendous. The Israelites look to a king to guarantee prosperity and security. But what they receive instead is a king who takes those things from them. 
They wanted a king they, they, whom they could control. Instead, they get a king who ends up controlling them. And this is the Old Testament version of a New Testament principle that when you have other kings besides God's, those kings do not end up saving you. They tyrannize you. Those passions and desires, they end up enslaving you. And so here we're talking about the idols of the heart. The things we look to for meaning and hope and significance. Good things in our lives that become ultimate things. And that end up take, take, taking life from us. That happens in all forms of things. Politics is one of those things. For us, as it was for Israel, it too can become for us a savior substitute, can it not? This can certainly happen with our elections. When people transfer their expectations for justice or salvation from God to government, when that happens, we are sure to be disappointed. And yet, we do it time and time again. It's just one of the weird features of American political life in the modern world that we think a change of government will improve the situation in the country and our hopes have been perpetually crushed when we've put too much stock in that process. There are many things that human governments are good for and there are so many things that they cannot do. And the thing they're really bad at is being a God substitute and savior. To put all of our hopes in a leader or an election can so easily take our joy from us. We cannot have our hope and joy rise with who's in office. But that dynamic not only happens with human leaders. It happens in all kinds of things, right? We want joy. We want relief. And so we settle and we turn to things that can give us momentary relief. For something that can get the job done for us in the moment, a hit of dopamine, a drink that takes off the edge, it's a relationship that's not good for us, that will give us something small at the beginning but in the end takes so much from us. The social media addiction that gives us a bit of expression and escape but in the end takes up so much of our time. So much of our time. It's the one drink that's nice that rolls into one or two more and and soon the physical pleasure that you once mastered quickly masters you. Ruling relationships. Souring other aspects of life. What have you put too much trust into? God says, watch out. Be careful what you wish for. Be warned. This choice is going to cost you something great. Your very freedom. And we'd love for the story to end with people saying, Whoa! Man! I didn't know! We changed our minds! We want your timing, Lord! We want your ways! But that's what not what happens. You know what they say? It's in the middle of verse 19. They just say, no. (laughs) No exclamation point. There shall be a king over us. 
that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. Israel hears God's wisdom but doesn't submit to it. God gives her instruction, fair warning, but she isn't teachable. Man, ever have that happen? (laughs) Somebody give you fair warning and you aren't teachable. It makes us want to pray for a soft heart. Me too. And a teachable spirit. For God to preserve us from arrogance and stupidity. Proverbs 12 says, The way of the fool is right in their own eyes, but the wise person listens to advice. What is God's answer to all this? His answer is to give them what they want. Not ultimately to punish them, but to teach them and to bring them to their senses. Essentially what God says to Samuel is, I am going to give them what they want because it's the only way that they will learn. And hopefully the experience of the, the disaster of their choices will turn them back to me. And so what we'll see is this just playing out. For the rest of 1 Samuel. God gives Israel a king named Saul. Who was smart. Big. Physically buff. Could take care of some enemies. And Saul promises change. And gives the people hope that they could believe in. And guarantees that Israel's status in the world would be restored. But after a good start. Saul starts to do exactly what God said that he would. He starts to use the people for his own advantage. And he turns out to be a self-idolizing, self-willed tyrant. And he'll be followed by more failed rulers. Approximately 400 years worth. And over time, Israel will learn what their heart needed because when they're taken away to Babylonian captivity and when they sing songs to a king in the Psalms, they sing them to God. They sing them to God. Um, And it ultimately prepares their heart to receive their true king who is very much a lot different than the leaders of the Gentiles, King Jesus. That's the story. What do we learn? Well, we learn that God sometimes gives us what we want to lead us to a place where we recognize our real need. One of the worst judgments in the Bible is when God turns people over to the desires of their own hearts. God's judgment can sometimes be to answer our prayer with a yes. But here's what I thought about. The reverse is also true. Some of God's greatest mercies come to us in the form of unanswered prayers. And I was going to sing a little bit of, Sometimes I think God for unanswered prayer. Because every time I say that, I think of that song. But some people get so mad at God for not answering their prayers. But what if in refusing to give us what we're asking for, 
He's actually protecting us. It may not seem like protection. After all, what's the harm in being married? What's so bad about making an extra 20000 a year? Or getting that job? Or that house? But the greatest blessing God could ever give us is the blessing to learn to be happy in Him alone. That is the greatest treasure that He can give us. And sometimes He has to teach us that lesson by withholding blessings that we think would be beneficial. This text also makes us think about our natural aversion to holiness (laughs) and being what it means to be distinct. We may not want a king over us in order to be like the other nations, but we do want to be like them. Like Israel, we would rather blend. It is attractive. It is popular. It is more comfortable to do that. It is also a rejection of our identity and calling. It is something that I understand. Like I said, I feel the pressure to cave every day. There are some times when it's been cool to be a Christian. This is not one of those times. Who wants to stand out in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? Who wants to have a different definition of success if that means not keeping up with the Joneses? Why a winsome purity in our conversation if we're going to get second glances? Why faithfulness in marriage when the other ways seem to have, other people seem to have more fun? Why chastity before it? Why a passion for worship over entertainment? Why kindness over patience? Character over charisma? Meekness over strength? Orthodoxy over whatever? Why the cross instead of the crown? Because these things are beautiful. And because there needs to be an alternative witness to the world's ways, doesn't there? One that's embodied and lived and ultimately enjoyed. And no, that isn't easy. There are certain things that Jesus says that will always sound good to most people. Caring for the poor and the marginalized sounds great, and it is. Something like the sex ethic of Jesus is never going to sound popular in any kind of Western progressive culture. Things like the nonviolence and enemy love that Jesus taught in our culture just don't make sense. They don't seem to work. We need to be mean to get things done. And when we come to like how we spend our money, it's a non-starter for us. The teachings of Jesus will sometimes seem like the world is open to them and other times seem like everyone against them. But here's the thing, following Jesus has always been about rejecting the status quo. It has always been about defying the crowds. It has always been about creating an upside-down kingdom of love. As heaven as it is, or earth as it is in heaven. And people around us are going to tell us it's not going to work. And I don't know what to do with that other than to prove them wrong. One act of self-denying love at a time. And if that doesn't work, 
And if we're not popular, we should be happy that we have earned the love and admiration of, and admiration of our Lord. And that we will die a saint, having given expression to eternally true things. It is a text that reminds us of our identity. And if anything, it prepares our hearts to receive Jesus. Because he is so different from the rulers described here. He didn't take, 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 take. He gave, 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 gave. And he calls us to follow him. In Matthew 20, verse 25, he says, uh, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's different. He wasn't like the rest of the world. And he drew a lot of flack for it. But he also drew a lot of people to himself. And you know what? He loved the people he, he drew and he loved the people who gave him flack. Because he didn't fight using the power that the world had. He, didn't, he wasn't Pontius Pilate. He took up the cross. He preferred the cross of injustice and declaring forgiveness out of love to the ways of Pilate and Caiaphas. I'm sure that Jesus felt the pressure to cave. I'm sure glad he didn't. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for 1 Samuel chapter 8. Thank you that it gives us the opportunity to consider your kindness to us. Sometimes you will give us things or allow things to come into our lives to hurt us. But you won't allow those moments to be unused or unhelpful. And ultimately you use those things to draw us back to you. Thank you for sometimes reserving the right to not give us what we ask for as a means of protection. Help us, Lord, to be steadfast in our commitment to live our lives in the way of Jesus. Give us the courage to ask questions like, in what way am I distinct at all? In what way could a person look into my life and see the heart of my Savior and King? How can I do that more and more? And thank you, uh, gracious Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus, who was so different and continues to be this compelling force calling us to a kingdom way of living and into your life and into your heart. We give you praise and thanks for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.